Hi again, and welcome to the Physiology by Physio podcast. Uh, As usual, my name is Greg Rodden, and I'll be your host. So Physiology by Physio is one of the newest collaborations between ITB, uh, Physio, and my own podcast, Med School Phys. We help you to gain a richer understanding of physiology and pathophysiology for both your classes and the board exams. So I'm sorry for the long delay in publishing this episode. Uh, Life as an intern is frankly crazy, uh, crazy but rewarding. Uh, And I've been getting the hang of it. Uh, Trust me, if I can do this, so can you. Um, But I'm glad that I was able to get this episode out and that you guys can enjoy it. So one announcement before we jump into the content of this episode on female reproductive physiology. Uh, In addition to intern life, I've also been helping to write a book, uh, because I'm crazy like that with two of my friends from Inside the Boards, Chase DeMarco, who is from the Medical Nemesis podcast, as well as Ted O'Connell, who is the writer of the wildly successful Step 2 Secrets book. Together, we've been writing a study skills slash life skills book that'll help you to dominate medical school. And guess what? It's done now. The book is called, and it's kind of a mouthful, uh, Read This Before Medical School, How to Study Smarter and Live Better While Excelling in Class and on Your USMLE or Comlex Board Exams. I admit that the title is totally a mouthful, but that's kind of what you got to do for search engine optimization these days. And I should note that even though we labeled it as Read This Before Medical School, it's really an amalgamation of pearls from the educational and psychology literature that will be helpful for anyone at any point in their journey. We also reference a ton of study strategies, uh, productivity hacks, services, and products that we personally use during medical school. If you're on the fence about buying it, you could also check out our Essentials PDF, which is like a 15-page summary of the essential points of the book, which can be found on our book page at freemeded.org. You can also find the link to this PDF in the show notes. We would really appreciate your help with getting this project the kickstart that it needs in order to become more visible to a wider audience. If you're interested in more information about the book, if you have feedback for the show, or if you have any other questions, feel free to email me at greg at insidetheboards.com, all one word. And most importantly, if you find our content to be valuable, please take a second to rate, review, subscribe, and then share Physiology by Physio with your friends. Okay, with our announcements out of the way, Uh, Let's move on to today's podcast, which will focus on female reproductive physiology, which will be relevant to the USMLE, the COMLEX, and beyond. The opening section will be on the cells of the ovaries and how they relate to monthly cycles. Ready to get started? Okay, the first question that I'll ask you is about the important cell types in the ovaries, comparing and contrasting the differences between female gonads and male gonads. What kind of cells do we have in the ovaries? Well, there's three important ones to know about. The granulosa cells, the theca cells, and the oogonia. Like we mentioned last time, the granulosa cells are analogous to the sustentacular or Sertoli cells of the testes. So the granulosa cells are important for supporting and nourishing the germline cells or the oogonia. Similarly, the theca cells of the ovaries have their counterpart in the testes, which are the lytic interstitial cells. Both the theca cells and the lytic interstitial cells produce androgens. Okay, cool. Now let's highlight a dissimilarity between males and females, specifically regarding their germline cells. Beginning at puberty, males continually replenish their supply of germline cells through the process of meiosis when making spermatozoa. 
But females are different. Instead of starting at puberty, over the course of fetal development, female germline cells in the ovaries multiply by meiosis. But instead of finishing the process of meiosis, instead they get arrested at a specific stage, the prophase 1 of meiosis. Given my experience of taking steps 1 and step 2 of USMLE and COMLEX, you don't need to worry about all the little details of meiosis for your board exams. Just try to get the big picture. Anyways, for females, by around 7 months in utero, the oogonia stopped dividing, reaching a peak of around 1 million oocytes. Then, through a process of selection, the best eggs are kept safe, while the chaff eggs will die off. Then, by the time a girl reaches puberty, there's around 400,000 oocytes remaining in the ovaries of the original 2 million. Again, the oocytes that survive this pruning process are arrested in prophase of meiosis 1. And then, as puberty begins and the reproductive years start, the ovaries of females will trade off developing and ovulating a single egg with each monthly cycle. Okay, cool. Now, what does the ovarian cycle look like each month? Well, during the follicular phase of the cycle, or days 0 to 14, a group of 6 to 12 follicles, each with an egg at its center, will be stimulated by FSH, or follicle-stimulating hormone, to prepare one egg for ovulation. When they're dormant and not being stimulated, these follicles are called primordial follicles, but once they're activated by FSH, they'll become primary follicles. Then, with further FSH stimulation, they progress to secondary follicles. And finally, one of these secondary follicles each month will become the tertiary follicle, also known as the dominant follicle or graphene follicle. I should also note here that it actually takes several months' worth of cycles for the selected follicles to mature enough to become eligible for the dominant follicle position. But anyways, there's a selection process that goes on in the ovary each month to choose the best candidate among the group and that special follicle will be known as the dominant follicle. The dominant follicle contains the egg that is ovulated at mid-cycle, while the other follicles are just out of luck. Okay, so because of this rigorous selection process, over the course of a woman's reproductive lifespan, i.e. from puberty to menopause, only about 400 to 500 of those original 2 million oocytes will be ovulated. The elite group of ovulated eggs are supposed to be the very best eggs in the basket, at least we hope so. Anyways, when the egg is selected for ovulation, it'll resume the process of meiosis, moving from prophase 1 to metaphase 2, where it's arrested again until one of two things happen. If the egg is fertilized by a single sperm, it'll finish meiosis 2 and merge its haploid nuclear contents with those of the haploid sperm and become a diploid zygote with a full set of 46 chromosomes. If it's not fertilized within 24 hours, then the egg will remain in metaphase 2 and subsequently die off. At day 28 of the cycle, the non-fertilized egg and the uterine lining will be shed during menses. Then, the new cycle begins. We won't focus too much here on the process of fertilization, because that's for the next episode, but I think it'll be helpful background info to keep in mind before we keep going. Hey guys, it's Greg from ITB. Uh, I just wanted to cut in for a moment and say that you should seriously go check out the great work that's being done by the guys at Physio. So Physio is the only resource to combine concise mnemonic sketches with cohesive conceptual explanations in their videos. And as an update for everyone, they just finished up their microbiology section. Like, it's totally done, including 40 pathogens not covered by the sketchy micro program. 
No offense, Sketchy, you guys are awesome too. Also, you should know that accompanying each video, there are Anki flashcard decks that you can use too. And their textbook is totally done. So bottom line of all of this, keep calm and watch Physio. Okay, now back to the show. Awesome. Now that we have a decent handle on the cells of the ovaries and the effects that they have, let's do a broad overview of female monthly cycles now. Next, I'll do a quick overall sketch of how the ovarian cycle, the uterine cycle, and the HPG axis all intertwine each month. Okay, ready? Go. When trying to understand a regular 28-day cycle, I usually start out by thinking about the HPG axis. Starting up top at the hypothalamus, we release GnRH, or gonadotropin-releasing hormone. Gonadotropin-releasing hormone releases the gonadotropins, FSH and LH, from the anterior pituitary. FSH, or follicle-stimulating hormone, is the dominant hormone in the follicular phase of the cycle, during days 0 to 13, which overlaps with both menses and the proliferative phases of the uterine cycle, again, days 0 to 13 and those events were taking place at the uterus. Meanwhile, at the ovary, FSH is promoting the selection and development of the dominant follicle. And FSH is promoting estrogen production by the granulosa cells in the ovary. So what is estrogen doing here as a part of the cycle? Well, estrogen helps with the follicular development, and it stimulates proliferation of the endometrium during the proliferative phase after menses. Also, at concentrations less than a critical threshold, some say around 200 picograms, estrogen provides negative feedback on the HPG axis, suppressing GnRH, FSH, and LH release. But past that critical threshold, estrogen starts to have the reverse effect, where it causes positive feedback on the hypothalamus and anterior pituitary. What does this positive feedback do? When we reach that critical threshold of estrogen, the anterior pituitary releases a surge of LH on day 13 of the cycle. The LH surge on day 13 then triggers mid-cycle ovulation by the egg on day 14, where the egg will burst from the surface of the ovary and be swept into the fallopian tube. The follicle that was left behind becomes the corpus luteum in the ovary. So what does the corpus luteum do? Well, it produces progestational hormones, particularly progesterone. Okay, very good. Now we're in the second half of the cycle. So during the second half of the cycle, also known as the luteal phase or the secretory phase, there are changes that take place at the endometrium under the influence of progesterone. Like we said before, progesterone causes structural changes to the endometrial vasculature, and it causes secretion of glycogen and mucus that will support an implanting egg. At the same time, progesterone is also relaxing smooth muscle of the myometrium to inhibit myometrial contraction and thereby support a pregnancy. Bear in mind that the egg is only viable for 24 hours after ovulation, leaving a narrow window for fertilization. Most of the time, pregnancy doesn't take place, so the egg will die. So what happens if the egg dies? Well, by around 7-8 to eight days after ovulation, if the egg dies, then the corpus luteum in the ovary will start to fail. When the corpus luteum starts to fail, progesterone levels will start to decline. And by 14 days after ovulation, or on day 28 of the cycle, progesterone levels fall too low to support the endometrium, and menstruation happens. Menses typically occur over the first 2-5 to five days of a new cycle. But also keep in mind that we have the HPG axis running in the background, which is getting another cycle started. 
This will cause estrogen levels to rise and the endometrium to begin proliferating again. And phew, guess what? So that was an overview of the whole cycle from day 0 to day 28. Okay, now that gave us a big, broad overview of the changes at the ovaries, also known as the ovarian cycle, the changes at the endometrium, also known as the uterine cycle, and the HPG axis. Okay, and the time has arrived for the big reveal that was promised. For ITB listeners, we were able to secure you a limited time 25% discount if you enter the code ITB25, as in 25%, at checkout. This code is good for 25% off your physio subscription, but it's only valid for one month from the time that this episode airs. So again, that's ITB25 for an exclusive 25% discount on a physio subscription from yours truly at Inside the Boards. And now let's finish out the rest of the episode. Okay, so thanks for sticking with us for this long already. Uh, We'll round out the episode with a couple more solid practice questions from the guys at Physio. Okay, let's do another question. A 26-year-old female has had difficulty becoming pregnant and also complains of very heavy menstrual bleeding. What is the most likely diagnosis? Okay, this vignette is associated with something called an anovulatory cycle. Anovulatory cycle. An anovulatory menstrual cycle is exactly what it sounds like. The menstrual cycle is disrupted, resulting in an inability to ovulate. The pathophysiology is not entirely clear, but essentially the hypothalamic pituitary axis is disrupted, which means the ovaries are insufficiently stimulated to cause ovulation. If the tertiary follicle doesn't rupture, then the corpus luteum is unable to form, which means progesterone remains low and estrogen is chronically elevated. In other words, the menstrual cycle is essentially stuck in the proliferative phase, so the hypothalamic pituitary axis is disrupted, which means the corpus luteum doesn't form. This results in a drop in progesterone and chronically elevated levels of estrogen. The high estrogen means the menstrual cycle is stuck in the proliferative phase, so the endometrium continues to grow but becomes fragile due to the low levels of progesterone. Without high enough levels of progesterone, the highly proliferative endometrium sheds, resulting in heavy menstrual bleeding. Because the endometrium is unable to be maintained, the patient has a difficult time becoming pregnant. So again, the diagnosis is an anovulatory cycle. Okay, let's do another question. On what day does ovulation occur in a typical 28-day cycle of the menstrual cycle? Okay, again, pretty straightforward. For step one, you need to know that ovulation typically occurs 14 days before menstruation. Menstruation occurs on day one of the menstrual cycle and typically lasts several days. This means in a typical 28-day cycle, ovulation would have occurred 14 days before that, so on day 14, or again, directly in the middle of a normal 28-day menstrual cycle. However, if we assume the patient had a shorter cycle, let's say 24 days, then ovulation would occur on day 10. So in a 24-day cycle, we know that ovulation always occurs 14 days before menstruation. So we just minus 14, and we come up with 
ovulation occurring on day 10. The point is ovulation will occur 14 days before menstruation regardless of the length of the menstrual cycle. Okay, let's do another question. How is the hypothalamic pituitary axis altered in a patient with Turner syndrome? Again, the hypothalamus secretes GnRH, causes the anterior pituitary to release FSH and LH. These stimulate the ovaries to produce estrogen. As estrogen rises, it inhibits the additional production of GnRH, FSH, and LH. Recall that Turner syndrome is a result of only having one X chromosome. This genetic abnormality results in non-functional ovaries, which cannot produce sufficient estrogen. So a drop in estrogen. The lack of estrogen reduces the negative feedback system on the hypothalamic pituitary axis, which means GnRH is increased, which then travels to the anterior pituitary and increases FSH and LH. All right, and that's all we've got for this episode. So as usual, um, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you learned something, and I'll see you guys next time.